open Instagram and everything is like blacked out. But I guess to me the thing about the black squares is that's a black square for 24 hours and then you're done with it and you can move on kind of. But for black yeah. people it's like our whole body is covered in a black square yeah. and we I carry it with us everywhere we go. How do I feel? Um, I feel exhausted, I feel angry, I feel upset. I feel frustrated. I feel overwhelmed with rage that things like this are still occurring across the world in the big 21st century. I have to continue to see black people from around the world brutalized by people who want to abuse their power. It was so disappointing to hear people saying they were shocked on social media. How can you be shocked about something that people have been talking about since 2013? I feel genuinely baffled as to how it is 2020 and yet us black people still need to campaign to be treated like our life matters. I think about this often, about what exactly separated me from the Michael Browns, the Kendra Jameses, the Jordan Edwards, the Tamir Races. This isn't just a single issue and it's not just about George Floyd, it's about, do you know Tamir Rice? Tamir Rice, in like 2016 or something, he was 12 years old at the time when he was shot in cold blood when he was carrying a toy that the police officers believed was a gun. Right, and so it's just like it doesn't matter if you're 12 or if you're 100 because if you're black, there's always sort of this like justification for violence against you. We feel that we need protection from police and yet they're supposed to be the ones making us feel most safe. And then you'll forget until that hashtag, whether it's George Floyd, Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Mark Duggan, until that dies down, and then the next hashtag trend comes along. While I can respect that non-black people are doing, that some non-black people are doing their part in trying to educate themselves about what Black Lives Matter really means, Fundamentally, my life is not a trend. Something that myself and many black people across the world need everyone to know is that we'll still be black tomorrow. This isn't a trend. It's not a trend to talk about the importance of black lives. The past few days have been heartbreaking and distressing. This has to have an impact on our mental health, constantly seeing brutalised black bodies that could easily be us if, like, if we were there. The youth as a collective are finally sick and tired of, you know, what's going on in the world and we are finally doing something about it. The famous words of Martin Luther King, our lives begin to end when we become silent about things that matter. Being black means to be powerful, educated, talented. Feeling the solidarity with my brothers and sisters that lets us mourn together, that lets us stand together, and lets us speak up together. It's really proud to be black at the moment. We will not rest, because if there is no justice, then there will not be any peace. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. America's chickens coming home. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. You're going to sing to swim, you're going to learn the truth. No matter what you do, you're going to learn the truth. Alternative action.
Consciousness Empowerment Talk Radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. And good evening, everyone, and thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. This is the Black Talk place where black truth and black views Black lenses are respected. It is a sanctuary for black truth. And we are so glad to have you with us. And I have gotten email uh, from lots and lots of people to give you at the beginning of the broadcast some warnings. For those of you who somehow become disconnected, if you are listening on your listening device, just close the application and come back in, and you will be reconnected. If you hear music, all of a sudden that means Blog Talk Radio has been having in the last week some technical problems, and I have been having some technical problems because I get glitch because of lightning and thunderstorms down here in South Florida. So I get a glitch in my Internet connection, and sometimes I have to reconnect. I know how to do that, so I won't have to tell you how to do it. But if that happens to you, simply begin the application, come back to the refresh. Uh, If you're in the chat room and it happens, go exit the chat room and come right back in. That I'm beginning to believe it really has to do with the instability of all of our internet um, connections and some of the technical difficulties that we've talked with Blog Talk Radio about, and they are fixing it. They are aware that because of some recent security uh, features that they have added to the platform, it's beginning to cause a problem. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we're going to be looking at mental wellness and black survival. Somewhere at the junction of multi-generational trauma with Brandon uh, Jones, who is an MFT and founder and director of the Jegna Institute. He's a psychotherapist, a professor, and a consultant. And before we begin and bring him in, um, I want you to know that this program is not intended, nor does it provide any form of medical advice or guidance. If you feel that you need emotional or mental assistance and support, uh, and it is an emergency, please call your local emergency number. If you 
uh, believe that you need other kinds of lifeline support. 24 hours in both English and Spanish, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is at 1-800-273-8255. We hope that you have also been keeping yourself safe, that you have been finding ways to uh, comfort and find peace and a whole nother kind of a living style to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic being suffered by every American in this country and all over the world as well. In the United States, as we come into this episode of Our Common Ground, there have been, there are currently 4 million 25 cases of COVID-19 in our hospitals, in our nursing facilities, and other medical facilities. So far, we have experienced 149,000 deaths. And if you are a surviving family member or a surviving friend, we certainly extend our condolences to you. 1.28 million Americans have recovered and in those recoveries are various disabilities and various uh, health casualties and uh, we need to talk about those more be more aware in our safety plans to understand that even if you do not if you're if COVID-19 is not fatal it has its consequences even in recovery. And just to bring you up to date from our discussion and tribute to Congressman John Robert Lewis and Dr. Reverend C.T. Vivian on last week and a continuing conversation about their legacy and their life sacrifices made during the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, Dr. C.T. Vivian, Dr. Reverend C.T. Vivian, uh, will be funeralized in a private funeral on Thursday in Atlanta at Providence Missionary Baptist Church. Fifty family members, and six grand, including six grandsons, will be in attendance. And today in Troy, Alabama, at Troy University, there was a huge memorial service for um, Congressman, U.S. Congressman John Robert Lewis, um, and he was also memorialized at Brown Amy Church, the famous Brown Amy Church, where it all began in Troy. Tomorrow morning, Dr. Lewis's. Um, Congressman Lewis's family and comrades will accompany his body across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma for the last time. I know that over the last 55 years, he has crossed that bridge 55 times. And on Tuesday and Wednesday, he will be held in repose at the U.S. Capitol Building Rotunda in Washington, D.C. 
and on Thursday he will be funeralized at Ebenezer, the famous historic Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, that is just a recap and a follow-up on what we have been doing. Mental wellness, black struggle. Brandon Jones, thank you so much for joining us here at Our Common Ground tonight. Brandon? Brandon, are you yes, there? Yes, I am here. Yes, I am here. Oh, okay. <laughs> good I evening. How are you? I'm good. Good evening to you, and thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Um, before, before we begin... Uh, I have described you as a psychotherapist, a professor, and a consultant, and of course you're the founder and director of the Jegna Institute. Mm-hmm. W- would you tell us more about what the Jegna Institute is and um, some of your work around black survival and mental wellness? Absolutely. So the Jegna Institute is a consultancy organization, and what we do is we train schools, we train governmental agencies and organizations that work with black folks. And what we do is we help build curriculum and programming to lead to better mental and emotional outcomes for black folks. One of the things that has happened, unfortunately, is the trauma that we've experienced has been going on for so long and it's manifested to something that shows up in many different complexities, such as chemical abuse, uh, mental health issues, uh, low academic achievement, domestic violence, or also known as intimate partner violence. Um, you know, black children represent almost every negative form of system that we have. Um, and our health is in some of the worst, you know, situations that it can be. And COVID-19 has just highlighted many of these problems that we end up having. So what I do is I go in to organizations and consult and, and assist on that level. And I also work with the community as well. Um, I have tons of people who reach out for one-on-one services or to, you know, help them help them with family dynamics that they have go on help them navigate um, systems that they may be involved in, whether that's juvenile corrections, even though it doesn't correct anything, um, also known as juvenile justice, when we know it's not a just system, uh, or if it's, you know, any type of child welfare situation, um, foster care, things like that, I assist in those manners as well. And for folks who are not familiar with what a JEGMA is, a JEGMA is a special person who dedicates themselves to protect, love, nurture, and develop our young by advancing our people, places, and culture. So that's what I tend to do and the folks that I work with, we attempt to do is advancing, um, you know, our people, our places, and the culture that we currently have. Um, and I'm based in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. I'm pretty sure that most of the people who are listening to this have heard about, the, the, you know, what happened with the murder of George Floyd and what happened afterwards. And that did not happen in my backyard. That happened in my front yard, as I'm very familiar with the community. I'm very familiar with the location that he actually, um, you know, got murdered at and the community responses that happened here in the Twin Cities. And then, you know, it trickled into a national response and then a world response. So so I'm right in the middle of it all. 
and I'm, I've been one of those people that have been called to connect, help, and figure out some of this um, frustration that ends up happening both for us in our own community and for people who are outside of our community. So that's a little bit about Judgment Institute and what I do. Yeah, one of the things that you say on your website, and for those of you who are interested and might want to do some follow-up work, it's Jegna, J-E-G-N-A, institute.org. What you say, Brandon, is Jegna is also for people who would like to improve themselves. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I want to emphasize that because improving yourself and many times for black people, specific for black people, is being able to balance, analyze, synthesize, and make choices as they navigate white supremacy and and um, racism in their workplace, right. uh, in in their going about their their daily lives. The right. other is a lot of people want to stop, I think, uh, especially after Trayvon Martin, when we begin to really analyze, synthesize, and process this whole theme of Black Lives Matter, that what do you do? Making choices, making decisions about what do you do when you want to come out of Silence, because I think personally that coming out of silence is life improving. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, because I think things die in the dark, and things live in the sunshine. So when you when you say that, what what kinds of services do you provide to those of us in the black community? who think we're doing okay, but we know right in the shadows something's not right. <laughs> something's, you know, we we deny pain yeah. uh, because we are mired in it so often. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when you, life, when you talk about improving life, give people an idea, a vision of what improving life means. Absolutely. You know, so improving life is subjective depending on who the person is and what their situation is. You know, people that I work with, they have issues with, you know, the person that they may have had children with. They have issues dealing with the system, whether that's the school or some agency that they're involved with. Sometimes they have just personal problems whether that's dealing with, like I, you know, like I mentioned before, chemical dependency, so they may have an addiction issue. Um, they may be addicted to sex. Um, you know, I have someone working with on a one-on-one basis now. She's a sex worker, and she, unfortunately, she's she's come into consciousness since being in sex work, and most of her clientele are white men, and she's a black woman, and she's and she's struggling to deal with that and and what that means for her. That she has this lucrative lifestyle that, that can be dangerous, can be very dangerous, but she's also coming into consciousness and understands that she's she's a tool, <laughs> it, like literally she's a tool for white supremacy and utilizing her body in a way that historically has been used, you know, in the past. So 
You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I help folks who come from so many different complexities and issues. Um, you know, I can go on and on with stories. But for me, helping people, when I talked about advanced people, it's funny because when you were talking, you hit on one of my frameworks that I utilize. And well, one of the things that I assist people and I try to help people understand is what I call the ABCs of resiliency. And that the ABCs of resiliency the A stands for adaptive awareness. So w- once you are aware of what is going on with you personally or in society, when you have that understanding, then you have to make some adjustments. You have to adapt to it. A lot of times we know what's happening. We know what's going on, but we don't make the changes that we need to make because we don't know how to. And like you said, for black folks, we've been in so much trauma for so long, it's normal. I mean, we eat trauma like Skittles at this point. And when we have something traumatic happen to us, a lot of black folks don't know what to do. They, they expect the pain to come. Um, and that's something that is very, is very detrimental to our ability to have, you know, have a view of the future or to want something better for ourselves because we always expect that something negative is going to happen to us because we live in a system of racism and white supremacy. So in a very anti-black system as well that we can't lose sight of. So the first, so the first part of the uh, framework is adaptive awareness. The second part, the B, is for balance and boundaries. And this is where the work really gets challenging because now people have to take a look at what are the things that are healthy for me or constructive, and what are the things that are non-constructive for me. And then I have to start making plans to protect myself emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially. You know, all these types of these do- domains that we have, you have to put boundaries up, which means you might have to stop talking to people you care about. You might have to leave a relationship. You may need to move out of the city or town you live in because it is not help- helpful for you to be in, and it's causing more hurt than good. And, that, and that's a very hard thing for people to do is to change their, um, you know, their comforts and things that they always known for the betterment of themselves. It's one of the biggest struggles that people mm-hmm. have when they do therapy. So that's the mm-hmm. that's the boundary part. The balance is you have to start figuring out what's a healthy balance for you, and the balance is in a few different areas: time and energy. How much time are you going to focus, you know, on things? How much energy are you going to give to people? Because that's the trade-off: how much investment you're going to have and how much time you put in that. You got to balance your compassion and your accountability, right? How much how much empathy and care do you have for something, and when do you have to just say enough is enough? You know, you have to balance your logic and your emotions, which is very hard for people, uh, especially black folks. We've been conditioned to have emotional responses to so many different things, and sometimes logic just goes out the window because we just, we're just reactionary. We don't use a lot of proactiveness into things. So we have, to, we have to be more logical when it comes to what's happening to us and balance that out with our emotions so those things are working in tandem and not against each other. Um, and then you have to balance um, – what am I missing? No, those are the main three areas. Proactive versus reactive is the fourth area, but I kind of talked about that. You know, we have to be able to do things that are coming and, and know what they are, and that's what I help people do is how do you – you know, now that you've had this experience, how are we going to prevent this experience from happening again or something similar like it happening? And then, you know, if it does happen, what are the what are the coping mechanisms or strategies that you have in place to make sure that it doesn't? So that's the that's the balance part. So you have balance and boundaries is the B. And then the C is one of the biggest things. And 
The C is highly uh, influenced by Mr. Newley Fuller Jr., which is you have to have consistent, constructive choices. You know, one of the biggest challenges that people have, especially when it comes to mental health therapy, um, talk therapy, is they'll do people will do things that help them. They'll do things that are correct, and then they'll stop. <laughs> It's so unfamiliar. It's out of the comfort zone, and when you've been in a tra- when you've been in trauma, trauma is all about the moment, right here, right now. You want to feel good. Trauma also je- keeps you in a comfort zone and jeopardizes your ability to take risks because you don't know what's on the other side. Um, and that's one of the things. So I try to help people stay in that place or in that zone, as I call it, that has helped them. When something works for you, don't you know? Don't just je- don't just leave it. Stick with it, even if it feels uncomfortable, because this is this is what growth is. Growth is not about feeling good and roses. Growth, you know, it, it can be painful and it can take time and it can be very uncomfortable. Just like working out, you know, if you stop working out in the gym for a couple of months, you get back in that gym, it's gonna you wake up sore the next day because your your muscles are readjusting, and that's what you know. That's the same type of situation that happens in life. So those are the ABCs of resiliency, and that's what I attempt to help people do on a more individual basis, whether that's an adolescent that I'm working with or an adult or even a couple, you know, having them figure out how do, how do they apply that same framework to their relationship. Um, so those, those are, that's the main um, kind of approach that I have. And that's highly influenced by cognitive behavioral therapy, also known as CBT. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, how do you begin to get people, you know, one of the things about black existence is the stress of code switching <laughs> the stress <laughs> the, the 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 stress of testing uh, always assessing the borders yep and the other is uh, somehow coming to a realization that there ought to be checks on your mental and emotional health in the same way that you check on your physical health, that at least uh, once or twice a year you go get a checkup to test whether or not it's the headache is physical or the headache is stress-related or the backache or the stomach ache or the swelling feet, whatever it is. How do you get people to come to that realization? I mean, I w- I'm one of the those people who believes that uh, emotional therapy, yoga, all those things are is part of self-care. Yeah. We Absolutely. struggle so hard, Brandon, as black people, to get through it all, that we believe that's the way. This this struggle is, you know, you 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 begin. We've got a lot of black, what I call, and I work with a lot of activists, um, mm-hmm. black activists, and black people who believe that they develop a skill for getting through it. And mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not a proponent of. I develop a skill because mm-hmm. there's, you know, so how do you get people to kind of like get into the mode of this is self 
care. This is not, you ain't crazy, you ain't depressed. Maybe you are depressed, but you don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you yeah, know, absolutely. so, you know, we've got people who have diabetes. My, my mother used to get so, I shouldn't say this, my mother used to get down. Mm-hmm. And her explanation was always, well, I think it's my sugar. <laughs> that was always her explanation. <laughs> How are you doing, Mom? Why do you sound down? Oh, it's just my sugar. Just sugar. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've heard it. I've heard it through my family. <laughs> you know. So you how, know, how do you get folks. people to to see Definitely. that struggle? It shouldn't be every day. Struggle. <laughs> you know, somehow humans are not equipped to to deal with struggle every day. Absolutely. You know, as black folks, we've as black folks in this hemisphere, and I'm talking specifically the Western Hemisphere, United States, Canada, and the islands, we have to adjust to being an anti-black, uh, racist, white supremacist system from from being here. I mean, I, w- I would I don't want to say our entire existence has been that, but a good chunk of it has. You know, we've had over 400 years of dealing with what we currently are going through, and it's just manifested to what it is today. And we have to be sustainable. So, I, I you know, in the work that I do, actually um, have a training that I do where I talk about moving away from self-care, and I make this joke that I'm divorcing myself from self-care, <laughs> and I'm moving on to this new, young, sexy thing called sustainability. And what I mean by that is it's a joking way of just getting people's attention, but what I'm saying is the way we've been taught self-care this notion of self-care is very reactionary. It's like something bad happens, and now you go meditate, and you go do your yoga, or you sip your tea, or you know you get your steps in on your Fitbit or whatever. But our lives have so many complexities that happen all the time. We don't, we can't, we can't afford to be so reactionary just for our own levels of stress and mental health, mental and emotional wellness. We have to be more proactive with, and that. So when we talk about having a more proactive approach. That's what I call being sustainable. Black folks have to be sustainable. We we have grown accustomed to being in a culture of struggle for so long. Literally, we called our culture the struggle for a long time, and we've grown so accustomed to that that that's that's for a lot of us that's all we know is struggle, and it is and it is stress, and it does become normalized to the point where we actually have higher levels of cortisol, which is the stress hormone than a lot of other ethnic groups in the world. African-American people have extremely high levels of cortisol in their blood, which, which is not good. <laughs> that means that our brains and our, and our, um, our bodies, our nervous systems are, are overly activated to just try to regulate normal day-to-day things. That is not healthy. Um, and this is why we have, you know, when you look at, when you break, it, when you break down health outcomes and social ills, by ethnicity, you always have African Americans and Native um, Indigenous folks one and two on the list. Like we trade off with them, depending on where we're looking in the United States. We trade off because we have these lives that set us up to always be responding to trauma, always being responding to toxic stress all the time. And what we've done in our own collective genius is we've just rolled with the punches as Black people. We this we just said, hey, this is it. Um, this is what we have to deal with, and we just keep it moving. And, you know, as black people, I think that's a cultural asset that we have is to be able to 
push through adversity, but that doesn't have to be where it stops. You see? So the work that I do is to try to help black folks not just exist in these, you know, in this society, in this world that puts us in this pain and struggle, but try to advance and evolve while we're in it as best as possible. And that's hard because evolution looks different for everybody. Now, we've been taught, and I don't know, I'm not going to get into the conversation about religion and things, but we, overall, we have a very Christian di- directive, and we've been taught that, you know, we'll, we'll get to what we need later on in life. <laughs> but we have to do something now, too, because our children depend on it, and we want our, you know, we want our babies to have an opportunity in this world to make a, a great impact and to live a life that isn't as stressful as ours has been. We have to do some work, and that, and that is not easy. But when it comes to code switching and dealing with racial battle fatigue, you know, dealing with the day-to-day issues that white folks put in front of us and dealing with the trauma that other black folks that we have and the anti-blackness that we have on our own, it is a lot to bear, and many of us just get burnt out. Yeah, um, and, and, and one of the things that um, has been uh, concerning me over the last couple of months is the kind of isolation um and then uh, from from the pandemic and then on compounding compounding um for brutal murders in our face on TV in video right. uh and how you begin i mean you know, when when we were out in the world, when there was no pandemic, uh, most of the time we'd all, everybody would go to work, and then you go to the lunch, and you get with your little group, and you process it with your little group, and everybody would try to comfort everybody else because the processing made it feel better. But we don't have that now. Um, I know uh, <clears throat> uh, as an activist, um, which began when I was very, very young, and it began with the images of C.D. Vivian and Congressman uh, John Robert Lewis. And I've had just been in a, their deaths has brought a cycle of pulses in my life. Because uh, I knew, not because I knew them in an, an adult, but, but because of what they represented when I was a child. And then I wake up this morning, and what's the first thing I started thinking about? Is the murder of Emmett Till, which was this month, uh, which which is in it, we we will begin to really look at in in August. And here I am. Stuck in Declantis land, <laughs> and I mean, and a lot of people that I know, a lot of people in our families, are not clued into what those pulses are. And then I look on the internet, and I don't see a great number except for El Michelle. Um, Odom's uh, wonderful women's group Uh, they call themselves a reading group but what they are is a therapy group and um, you all should check that out on Tuesday nights on um, Hangouts and Google Um, 
and she can post it in our chat room, the address, and I'll announce it. But one of the things that I wonder about is is whether or not we have enough awareness of the complexities of our duality in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I I think we do, but then I think we don't. I think it's a distorted view on our duality. I think I think a majority of us see our identity in this United States as something that um how do I how do I say this? I think we uh we don't see ourselves as, as a part of this nation. That national like we looked at nationality, American's not something that comes to mind for many black folks. I do think that for the generations behind myself, so the generation Z's, um and and yeah, pretty much Generation Z, I think that they're going to have more of a Americanized viewpoint of themselves than the generations that I'm in and that uh, are ahead of us because they're being more socialized um, to think like, as they're non-black people, <laughs> which is interesting because we have these the, – right now there's so much of a focus on you know Black Lives Matter, but – all that language that has been talked about in the last two months is being shifted to BIPOC. And for folks who are not familiar with that term, it's an acronym for Black Indigenous People of Color. So they're starting to conflate the whole focus of, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and, and focusing on Black voices and Black – now everybody's got pain again. And we're going through the same thing that happened, you know, when affirmative action got kicked off in the 70s where – Everything got conflated, and then we lost really the focus of what the purpose of the the mission was. And see, that's another stressor. That's another stressor. Exactly. Because today I was on a phone call trying to talk to with a number of people uh, the whole notion of what's going on in Portland. Is it time for these all the white people in Portland to go home because – this president and his campaign are now begin to, to to turn it into uh it's all about black lives matter and right now it really isn't all about black lives matter uh but it's causing it it's giving opportunity to support of a white uh supremacist theme i i, I get you the let's talk some yeah. more about this conflation thing yeah. Um, because um, there's a history of completion. For instance, in the at the end of the civil rights era, and at the middle of the Black Power movement, um, there was completion going on, and people began to peel off into communism and Marxism and all kinds of <laughs> yep. labels and 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 it, it it blurred things and and so many people, especially grassroots people, uh in urban areas got very confused. Um, you know, I mean Absolutely. even pe- you know, so 
I think that that's another. I mean, we just have all these things compounding what we already have to deal with. And there's mm-hmm. another thing. I'm. 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 I just hope that the last two generations. I don't know what they call themselves. Millenniums, and then the other ones. Whatever the ones behind the millenniums were. Generation Z. Uh, Generation Z. (laughs) Okay, Generation Z and millenniums. I sure hope they don't become what you just characterize as more American. Lord have mercy, we don't need no more American black people. (laughs) (laughs) I would hate to think that because... One of the things that I am concerned about and one of the reasons that I think it has something to do with uh, emotional and mental wellness and black survival is that we learn some things about surviving along the way. And if we become Americanized, now you, you, you correct me. You might want to try to correct me, but I think if we lose some of those things, we lose some of our trade tools to get through surviving. Exactly, yes. One of those things is what you just, the key word, resilience. So how are you resilient as a black person with those tools and then still maintain uh, the emotional and mental balance. I mean, you know, James Baldwin once said, Jimmy Baldwin, I love to say Jimmy Baldwin, Jimmy Baldwin once said that if you're black in America, you're constantly in a state of rage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how do we how do we find I, I I as a I grew up Jim in the Jim Crow era in the South. I understand about raging and smiling all at the same time, <laughs> but how healthy is that <laughs> over long periods of time? Mm-hmm. It causes confusion, and confusion breeds opportunity for all different types of things. control, really. Confusion breeds opportunity to control, and it leads to all different types of things that people can do to you. And this is what this is this is what I'm saying is I I am a millennial. I'm on the older end of the millennials, but I I'm actually a millennial, and I see this, I see this with my peers. Yeah, I'm only 34 years old. <laughs> I know, man, you've been connected for a while. <laughs> Most people don't re- realize that, but yeah. Um, so I'm I you know I'm born in '86. And uh, so I, I see it on both ends. And the generation behind me and even my own children and their generation, that's what a lot of the, the work that I do is really focused on them because that that's going to be a huge paradigm shift, and it's being done deliberately. <laughs> and when you talk about mm-hmm. losing resiliency, a lot of them don't even know that they need to be resilient towards anything. They see racism as police brutality. That's that's where the vision is. It's not about the system that affects us in the nine areas of people activity, right? So, and for folks who aren't familiar with that, you know, 
economics, education, entertainment, labor, law, politics, religion, sex, and war. And we can add health in there for a tenth area. But most most black folks, you know, that were born in 1990 and to now, they don't they don't even see a system of racism. Most of them don't. And then for the black folks who go to college, the young black folks who go to college, they're educated to not understand it in that manner. They're educated to understand uh, oppression from just white males and heterosexuals. They're not, they're not understanding how the system works and keeps us oppressed and how it even utilizes some of our young people who do get to that level of education. Um, utilizes them to, to not even fight against them, but just to be a voice or a tool for someone else's resistance, which is a whole other thing. We can get into that a little bit later. But the key is what ends up happening is, or what is happening is a lot of black folks are losing that cultural identity. They're just seeing themselves as one. And, and, and a way for folks who are listening to this can test this is the black, the young black people in your life, go ask them, what do they feel about racism? And just listen to some of the things they say. It's going to probably shock you. But they're going to say things like, you know, everybody should just treat everybody the same. Or I know I'm not racist. You know, I was, I was taught to, you know, treat everybody fairly, you know, use that term, and treat everybody correct, which may be true, but then they don't understand the systematic things that take place. They feel that stress. Mm-hmm. They feel that racial battle fatigue. But they don't understand that that's what it is. They, they they start to internalize it as there's something wrong with me and not something wrong with the environment that I'm in. And that's what ends up happening to a lot of black folks just in general, but especially these two generations. I would say millennials and Generation Z and whoever comes behind them, that's what they're dealing with. Because they, what's happening in, in this society of America is a lot of admixture. We're getting a lot of we're getting a lot of push for interracial relationships. We're getting a lot of push for interrelated inter ethnic communities, and that's where gentrification comes from and things like that. Is they're forcing black folks and mainly white folks to be in the same area, seen as one. This country works better when everybody is on the same page. Now it comes with the standard of white and be more like white people and have more white culture, not your own culture. And this is why we see things that we create start to be picked up by white folks because it is a, it is a blending that is taking place. So even when you look at, you know, social media, let's use that for an example, you look at a lot of black culture that's created and shared on social media, who picks that stuff up? White folks do. And you don't know what's the difference. Like right now, one of the biggest social media platforms right now is TikTok. And you got black folks doing all these great choreography dances. You know, we we all we have always been the best dancers. And guess who's now doing those dances? And who's singing these songs and they're doing all this stuff? White folks and other people are joining along too. But now you don't even know the difference between is a black person created something or a white person created it because it's all being formed into one. <laughs> And this is what this is what's happening from a bigger global, well, not global, national level, because what what ends up happening is we're losing a lot of our black identity, and we're and we're being more pushed towards just being seen as Americans. And I do think that there is a negative impact with that because we lose a piece of ourselves and a piece of our history. One, we don't talk about our history. 
um, enough for our young people to respect it or to even connect it to their lives today. And then two, we, you know, we like to say, well, they don't teach African history in the schools, which they don't. And why would they? Because that's not the goal. So it's up to us to maintain our culture and to find ways for our culture to be shared with the young people so they can under, they can understand it and apply it to their lives today to keep them moving forward. Because this system will remain racist and white supremacist. It will remain that way, but it's going to be a very soothed version of it. It's going to be a very refined version of it where you don't even know that you're being harmed because you're a black person. <laughs> you don't even realize it, which most young black mm-hmm. people don't. And And if you look mm-hmm. at the movement that has taken place, Black Lives Matter, I see more white women out there than anything. Well, that's certainly the case in Portland <laughs> as of the last four days, and I'm figuring out who, where where uh, our mamas know better than to go out there. <laughs> right. <laughs> because that ain't going to play. <laughs> um, it, 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 you know, it's it's really interesting, and I I think that we do have an obligation uh, to share in a way that we are not sharing about culture. And most young people, and I guess I'm talking to a young person. I didn't I didn't realize you were so young. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I mean, you've been doing this work online for like long it seems time. to me like a long long time. Yeah, I but, got an old soul. But, <laughs> Okay, so one of the things that uh, occurs to me is that in our community, we have not been deliberate in helping uh, our generations after us understand what culture really means. You know, last year they were kind of like on this thing of, Appropriations, but they were talking about dance. They were talking about entertainment. They weren't talking right. about the other kinds of appropriation. That for you know, for instance, um, I was talking with tonight about the pussy people that protested the women that protested. Not that I was against that protest, but um, they protested the day after Donald Trump was inaugurated. And I pose the question to my audience, where were they when the white men decided that the black president was never going to move an inch? Where were the pussy people then? And the other is, where are they now that he has, in my estimation, declared a race war on black and brown people? Where were they when... They were putting brown children, babies, and toddlers in in cages. So where are the pussy people now? So I guess the pussy people have turned into the moms, and they're hollering Black Lives Matter, and they're hollering it at a federal building that has maintained a a system of assuring that oppression locks us down anyway. So um, you you wonder if we have done enough to help black children, people 
in the millennial and the Generation Z, I see some of it in the Generation X, understand the oppressive nature of the society and the government under which they live, where whether we have helped them to understand that culture is more than entertainment. It is about a belief system. It is about what we believe over the time frame in which we have had to struggle to survive in this country, America with three Ks. Absolutely. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I believe it was Dr. Amos Wilson who said that culture is Dr. Amos a tool Wilson for was I have to brag about it all the time. Dr. Amos Wilson was a guest on this show in our first three years at least once a month. Wow. We need those shows and the, at least. <laughs> and Man, the people in amazing. the radio station where I work didn't like what he had to say. And they stole the tape recordings except for wow. one. Wow. Yeah. They didn't steal them. Wow. They took them and and recorded other their music on top of them. But anyway, that was a big loss for me. I mean, I was devastated. But anyway, go ahead. Let's talk about what my good friend, and, and he was such a loss in my life, Dr. Amos Wilson. You know, Dr. Amos Wilson is actually one of probably my biggest influence to the work that I do. You know, being able wow. to you, you can know, see still, it. Yeah, thank you, thank mm-hmm. you. You know, being able to be able to hear and see him just use, utilizing YouTube and then read his books has really transformed my thought process and my purpose for what I do and. You know, he he said, I'm not going to quote him verbatim because it's so hard because he's got so so much wisdom. But he had said that culture is the survival mechanism that we have. And, and you know, culture is our main teacher is pretty much what Dr. Amos Wilson said. And what has happened is I think we've lost a lot of that. And that's how we get um, to use the term from <laughs> Jada Pickett-Smith, entangled. <laughs> We get entangled with with the uh, other people's agendas and other people's focuses, and then we get lost. When we talk about the pussy people, they they had they came out because they needed to have they had an agenda, and now that their agenda has either been met or they found another way to deal with it, they're not going to come out for us because it doesn't benefit them. And that's another thing that we have to be mindful of. As we, you know, as we're painting Black Lives Matters on various streets, is who are these people that are coming out here, and why are they out here now? What, where is this going? And we have to be very, we have to be very serious about that. And that doesn't mean serious doesn't mean that we have to inflict violence, but we have to be, we need to be very protective of and of what our purpose and strategy is. You know, as Black people, one of the things that I think culturally that we've maintained. Over, I believe it comes from the continent, is we are very caring and generous people, sometimes to our own demise, but we allow other people to come in and then end up abusing us or using us, and we don't understand why they're doing this to us. And, and a lot of it's because, you know, their value system doesn't match ours, and they, they will do things to 
for their own benefit before they would do it for ours, you know. And and also to bring in Dr. Amos Wilson here, he also said that if it ever comes down to feeding white children or black children, white people are not going to be on your side to make sure your child is fed. And that's always stuck with me because it's so true. If, if we, it, and, and COVID-19 should be our 2020 wake-up call for what is, what's meant by that statement. Because when it all boils down, you need to have your ducks in the to protect you and your own because they will have theirs. And we have to be very strategic and smart about that and protect what culture we do have left. Because there is, I, I believe, there is a strategic effort to wipe out what's known as black culture and just make it this Americanized version so that we, you know, we all behave and we all have a similar value system as they do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. There is no doubt he was one of the most underrated, but one of the most powerful black uh, professional psych. He was a psychologist, along with Dr. Naeem Akbar, and Absolutely. somehow all these other people who used to oh, I. I I know I know everybody in the world, but I knew Dr. Akbar when he was Luther Ream <laughs> in <laughs> His family was a, a close fa- uh, family friends. Um, and I had a man crush on him when he was in college, and I was like in the seventh grade <laughs> or something. <laughs> but anyway, um I, I think that you've hit on a something that I really want to talk to you about what we've in, in terms of what we've lost and how we have to have in order to be healthy an awareness of what the reality is of our situation when we talk when you talked about uh understanding that they will have theirs and they don't care if we have ours. And somehow we've got to translate that into a healthy way of struggling as opposed to uh, a a way of struggling that brings us to unwellness. Um, I'm I'm a a cancer survivor, and one of the things that I'm always aware of is how debilitating it is not to have a sense of wellness. So we're going to take a break. Our guest tonight is Brandon Jones. If you're sitting out there and you're standing in line, you can come in and get a good seat with uh, Gio and Alpho and Al Michelle right in our chat room because uh, there are still seats available. If you're listening on your listening device, the number is 347-838-9852, and you can take a seat there as well uh, if you have problems in listening to our stream and you are not in the chat room. Thank you for being with us. Our guest tonight, Brandon Jones. He's the founder and director of Jegna Institute, a psychotherapist, professor, and a consultant, and he has Uh, been looking at and exploring how we help our people improve emotional self-care, begin and transfer a necessary 
healing um, and how we deal with the notion of a healthy struggle. I'm Janice Graham, and we will be right back. So as soon as we can uh, get you in your seats and you can get your questions together, we'll take your questions in the second hour of this program. So we hope that you will take an opportunity to think through some of the things we've discussed um, uh, in, in this first page. Post-traumatic slave syndrome is an explanatory theory that really looks at multi-generational trauma. One of the things that's difficult for people is their first response is, oh my God, that happened so long ago. We're talking about people being captured, shipped, sold, beaten, raped, experimented on, and then you have to ask the question, did the trauma continue? Yes, so 300 years of trauma, no help, freed. No help, more trauma. If it's a sustained trauma, then the, the impact of that is also sustained. When we look at multi-generational trauma, we're looking at people who are maybe victims of natural disasters and their families and their children and generations of folks who have experienced war. Uh, and we know that there are residual uh, mental, emotional, traumatic impacts. And what I did was I started to look at the African-American experience, starting with slavery, as a real clear long enduring trauma. I started to see that there were clear connections between that survival behavior and contemporary living in African American experience. I started to see common behaviors that I took for granted as, well, cultural. There's adaptive behaviors, survival behaviors. Well, what are they? Looking for Searching but not finding understanding anywhere. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. How do you wake up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health? It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it. I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in a journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. We invite you to be a regular here at Our Common Ground, Saturday night, 10 p.m. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And at Truth Works Network. 
Social network platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Tumblr, and our web blogs. TruthWorks Network, where the truth must be spoken more than once. Our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. cases it's not a brick and it's not a rock but it's a word anyone who's lived long enough you've heard that before we've seen it we've experienced it the more things change the more they stay the same and that's that's sad and it's sad when it's not just in the world but when it's in the church I came away with a sense of racial trauma of not feeling secure about who I was as a black girl um, did I actually have a hope in a future? Um, those things are in question. And, and so in that school environment, I learned that there was something inherently wrong with me. And no amount of whatever, education, etc., was going to fix it. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now back to Janice. And thank you for being with us. And guess what? The the talk real raw right now just walked up in the chat room. Thank you for being with us, India Declare, real raw and right now, Madam uh, has joined us. And thank you for joining us. Our number is three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two here in the Black Sanctuary. Thank you all for for being with us, and um, we hope that you are staying safe tonight at Our Common Ground. It's mental wellness, black survival, the junction of multi-generational trauma, and how we begin to see um, uh, emotional and mental wellness and self-care in all of the compounded stresses that we experience as a people that is different from everybody else. Our guest is Brandon Jones. He is the founder and director of the Jegna Institute. You can find 
them at Jegna, J-E-G-N-A Institute dot org. He's a psychotherapist, a professor, and a consultant. And tonight he's consulting with us because we have questions. Brandon, once again, thank you so much for for joining us here at Our Common Ground. And we're at the top of the hour. And one of the things that we ended the first page at Our Common Ground was talking about uh, the need uh, to uh, build a base to carry the messages, the, the the tools of resilience through generations. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, if if you caught the clip that we played coming back in, it really was of a young woman who I interviewed uh, maybe about five years ago or six years ago uh, and she was one of the children who was on the bus where I was a monitor in the mm. desegregation of schools in South Boston. Mm. A bus that endured trash and bricks and rocks and bottles. And she yeah. was a first grader. And she's talking about how she carried the trauma, the pain, uh, across her life. Let's talk about intergenerational trauma and how we carry it as a black people. Absolutely. You know, Intergenerational trauma is the trauma that is transmitted from one generation to the next. What ends up happening is with that transmission, we have both a behavioral component, and a lot of times, and many people aren't aware of this, we have a physiological component as well. So our nervous systems as individuals adapt and adjust to the environments that we're in and our nervous system starts to regulate itself in the toxic stress. And I mentioned this earlier about black folks having high levels of cortisol, which is one of the stress hormone, one of the main stress hormones that we have. But we also have other features as well that need to be pointed out and talked about, like having overly stimulated amygdalas. And for folks who aren't familiar with brain science, your amygdala is in your limbic system. Your limbic system is pretty much on the on the size of your brain. I think your tempor- what we call the temporal lobes. And what your amygdala does is it is pretty much your alarm system of your body and of your brain. So it's like the Brinks Home Security System or the ADT. So when anything goes wrong or something doesn't feel right, what ends up happening is your amygdala starts to uh, activate. And it starts to it starts to focus on your survival. And I can imagine this woman that you had on as a first grader being on the bus going to this foreign institution that she doesn't know much about, having all these white faces yelling at her, throwing things and terrorizing her, that young lady's amygdala had to be on fire. It had to be just like overly stimulated because your your body literally goes into safety mode. 
You know, oftentimes we talk about it as fight, flight, or freeze. And I can imagine every day going back and forth from the schools to home that this young lady's brain was having one of those responses. And that's not a normal situation to live in. You know, that's not a normal situation to adjust to. And being in the first grade when, you know, in the first grade, you're like six years old, six, seven years old. Your focus yeah, isn't on survival per se. Yeah, you're not focused mm-hmm. on survival. Mm-hmm. You're fo- you're, mm-hmm. You you want to play and have joy and have snacks and laugh. And that's mm-hmm. what a six-year-old is mm-hmm. supposed to be focused on. Not mm-hmm. am I going to die today on my way to school. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. As a as a monitor on that bus, um, <laughs> I have stayed in touch with thirteen of the children who I was responsible to keep safe as we rode on a school bus through the black um, section of Boston, and it was very segregated at that time. And South mm-hmm. Boston was. Uh, the trappings, the icon of Mm -hmm. uh, white supremacy and racism in the city of Boston at the time. And Mm -hmm. one of the things she said in the interview, and maybe I should have incorporated it in the clip, she said to me in that interview, she says, there's not a day in my life that I don't see your face and when I see exactly. your face, I feel, I felt safe. Because I kept saying to exactly. the children, we had them huddled on the floor. Yep. And I had them to hug each other so that they would all get together. And the two monitors on the bus, we could cover their bodies yep. in case the windows broke. And yep. I didn't want them hit with glass. But then I have my own guilt uh, about those rides, and I talk with those young people about it all the time. Is I, I can't, I, and their parents. I, I can't see doing the, after the first day. I went home and I said, I can't see doing this to these children again. Right. And when when they called me and told me the buses were going to be rolling the next day, I was like, Are these people crazy? But um, I think that it's not just the desegregation of schools. It's also the period that we went through under the enforcement, whatever enforcement there was, of Title VII when black people went into um, uh, hostile work environments. Yes. Um, as part of some white folks seeing it as being forced to work with black people, and this wasn't this mm-hmm. and 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 I think I think people in the in the northeast outside of the south that because they had some comfort level because they could go to department stores even though they couldn't try on any clothing or shoes <laughs> or anything just like the people in the in the in the south but they right. felt that that because they were free to do that because they were free right. to ca- uh to catch white taxis 
And I would right. say to my friends in the North, the only reason you catch white taxis is because there aren't any black taxis. Ain't no black ones. <laughs> I grew right. up with the black taxis, three black mm-hmm. taxi companies. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so when we try to bring, to build that bridge um, to help, uh, like Juanita, who was on the, on the clip, she understood the damage that was done all the way into, she talks about all the way into high school. Yeah. You know, so how do we begin as parents and caregivers of y'all millennials and Generation <laughs> Z and, you know, and I, I have, I have generate millennials as grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the little one is not. I don't know what he'll be generation something else. <laughs> but um, one of the things that how do we begin to, as you said earlier in the program, that they don't even know. How do we begin uh, to? Lend those tools, the tools of resilience, the tools of awareness to new generations? Absolutely. Great question. Because I think there's a lot, I think there's a lot of ways, and there's probably ways that I'm not aware of that we can do, but some of my suggestions are one of the biggest tools that I've learned to be helpful when I work with families who have a lot of intergenerational trauma is having the adults and caregivers tell their own personal story to the young people. You'll be amazed how many families don't talk about their lives, how many parents don't tell their children about themselves or how they grew up or anything. They only tell them when stuff goes wrong. It's like, you know, when I, when I was your age, we couldn't do this or, you know, I would never say this or never say that. But they don't tell them about growing up in those time periods and the, the experiences they had. Those are the huge rapport-building opportunities that a lot of parents and caregivers miss to tell their experience to their children. And children, believe it or not, they do care, and they do want to know. And, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and I, I think one of the things that, that we, we, unfortunately, we look at as a negative thing is their, you know, what I would say is their attachment <laughs> to devices and, and, you know, the Internet. But there is still a human factor there where young people want to know stuff, and they want to know about mm-hmm. you. And it's not just uh, you can't. You have to be able to do it in a thing in a manner that's not forced. Like sit down, let me tell you about when you know this. But just like share a little message of wisdom about life and how things work, because mm-hmm. a lot of these young mm-hmm. people have no frame for that. It's not on TV. They're not watching the History Channel. They're not watching documentaries. They're not going to the libraries and checking out documentaries on Black history. They don't know anything. They don't know anything about the, the cities and towns they live in. They don't know nothing. They're just going and living their current mm-hmm. existence. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things that we've missed is that personal history. And then being able to share that is a yeah. huge opportunity. Um, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things that I hear a lot is, you know, we need to teach black children black history, but we never teach them about their own lineage. <laughs> we never talk about their mm-hmm. own family history. Like, in therapy, in therapy, there's this tool that we use called a genogram. And a genogram, in essence, is pretty much a family tree. 
There's all these shapes and designs that we utilize to highlight certain things that happen in your families. And one of the things that I learned very early in my career is when I did genograms with black folks, the genograms were just, they were very short. <laughs> they looked kind of, they looked sad. I would say that that's probably the best way to say it. It's like, because people just didn't know information. They could only go up so mm-hmm. far on one end, mm-hmm. couldn't go up on the other. And then I had to look at my own genogram and say, damn, you know, I'm missing a whole half because I don't know my biological father. I don't know any mm-hmm. of his history. I don't know any of his lineage. Mm-hmm. That's a part of me that I'm still trying to search for information to this day because I do think that it's a part of my healing journey. Most young people can't go beyond their parents or grandparents on where mm-hmm. they come from. How did they get to the places? You know, you, you talked about being in Boston. I know you're in South Florida now. But how did your people get to Boston? Because most black people were in the South. But there's a journey mm-hmm. there. There's a, there's a story. Yeah. Of how they end yeah. up at, in Boston that many people have no idea. And that's so important. And I think part of the reason why we don't know this is because what what we know as elders and eldership has been shifted and, and changed so much over the last couple of decades that now a lot of young people just they don't they don't care about what grandma and grandpa had to say. <laughs> they they just go into something mm-hmm. else. So Yeah, it's really you know. interesting that you bring that up because for Generation X, they had roots. And roots, right. most black parents made their kids sit and every week and watch roots. And then black people started uh, examining and trying to discover what their roots, what their family tree was like. And then black people started having uh, all these uh, family reunions. And one of the things that happened is Skip Gates killed all of that because he then made it so commercialized and it was all about uh, famous people as opposed to uh, regular people that it just turned a whole bunch of people. Thank you, Skip Gates, very much. Uh, It really turned a lot of people off from that. But I think you're talking about... um, what we call in professional investigations, you're talking about history, uh, uh, history grams. Uh, And those can be done very easily. Uh, For instance, one of the things that I'm doing, because I'm at that age now, that I want to make sure that my grandchildren know me, that they know the life that I live. And it's not going to come from them seeing my great-grandfather and and all of that stuff. But to tell my stories, because, um, you know, it will have to be on Audible or something like that. But one of the wonder, most wonderful books and, and blueprints, I would think, is um, Wilkerson's um, the sun, the warmth of another, sun, of a different sun. Yeah. Come on, Michelle, help me, help yeah, me with I, it. I got it. Uh, in the chat room, sun. yeah. Uh, because what she does is she outlines the history and then she tells the story. Um, and and I think that you know, for instance, in this COVID, so many of us have lost friends. Um, and I'm yep. sending my my heartfelt love and condolences to India. Declare 
who recently lost family uh, to this pandemic, to this era where where we had a government, we paid taxes, and nobody gave a damn about that we were dying. It didn't matter to our government. Somebody needs to tell that story. That um, absolutely, you know. And and because uh, it is it is imperative that our children not grow up thinking something is wrong with them. Exactly. And I think that that is the part. You know, I grew up in the Jim Crow South, and until I was in the ninth grade and had to go segregate the white school. I I just knew I was the the, the ish. <laughs> there was no experience <laughs> in my life that didn't tell that told me different. And I think that was true for a lot of black children in the South in my um in my generation. We didn't we didn't experience trauma. We didn't have no white people traumatizing us every day. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it was it was all black all day every day. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. <clears throat> we um, we had a sense that we were worthy of the love and support of everybody, right. and when that changed, yep. and that changed for kids in the South, and it became more pronounced. For children outside of black children outside of the South, so yep. let's talk about in um, we've we've only got um, about twenty five minutes before we have to start getting out of here. But let's talk about to the notion that we have to just like we take our kids for vaccines and we take our kids for their annual checkup. And just like now, we're wearing masks to protect ourselves. Um, And just as though the church of my generation, the black church of my generation, Michelle, in the chat room, you're absolutely right. The church was a place of protection in history and culture. So how do we begin... A plan, an individual. Do we have to have an individual plan for self care to to keep the emotional and I mean um, <clears throat> to keep this emo- emotional resilience and a balance in our mental health? Yes, I, I think that we need to have what. Mr. So Mr. Nilly Fuller says a united independent. When I say we need to have a united independent, you know, I had forgotten it. I had forgotten that. I'm so glad you brought that up, Brandon. Say it again. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten um, Dr. Neely Fuller's admonishment on that. Say it again. Mm-hmm. We need to have a a united independent effort. We've gone through so much trauma, <laughs> decades of this. That, and it's funny because we hear, we heard it during the clip that you played um, uh, before we started the second half here, 
someone said, you know, all we need as black people is love, which is probably true. But some, but then another person who spoke had said that, you know, as black folks, we need to come together, which is also true. Mm-hmm. But if you have uh-huh. a bunch of people who are traumatized and you have a bunch of people who are, you know, and I'll use the terms of Dr. Joy uh, DeGruy, broken. What are we coming together to do? <laughs> like mm-hmm. what ends up mm-hmm. happening is we end up just sharing our pain with each other and nothing ever gets really healed or fixed. So what I like to say is, and I, and I borrow this from Mr. Millie Fuller, is we need a united independent effort. If all of us take a step towards being better, then everybody, then the community does heal. And everybody, we can't wait for everybody to heal. We have to start our journey now. You have to start your journey. You can't wait on the next person. And if you're someone who is a caregiver or you're someone who is connected to people who are younger than you, you have to understand that you're a role model. So what you do is going to be way more impactful than what you say. So, yeah, we do need action plans, health, wellness plans. And we need to be able to do we need we need wellness in a couple different areas and I'll share a few of those right now. We need to balance what we need to do for our work and for our leisure leisure time. That that time is valuable. So, you know, you have to make in this society you have to make money. Okay. <laughs> Let's just be honest. You gotta make money, but if you are if that's all you're doing and you don't have any time for yourself, you gotta figure that out because you're gonna overdo it. You're gonna burn yourself out. You have to prioritize how you spend that time and make sure that people aren't wasting your time or you're not wasting your time, right? You have to control interruptions. You have to allow time for thinking and for the unexpected, right? You have to give yourself – you need to go and read books like Akbar or Isabel Wilkerson or watch documentaries if you're not a reader or YouTube clips. Get constructive information because it helps give you a foundation. It helps you. Mm-hmm. And one of the mm-hmm. biggest things that I got, you know, on my healing journey, and it's funny you said I've been doing this for so long, is because I, I had access to good information very early, which helped me. And there was a it was a name a man local man by the name of Sam Simmons here who helped me understand what trauma was, and it was like it, it was like this man knew me even though it was the first time I met him. He was just talking about, you know, the experiences that we have as black folks, and he gave me the label of trauma, and it was like. It just connected the dot. It was like, okay, this is what's going on. I'm not crazy. I know that my people are crazy. We, we have been traumatized. We have been through an experience. And then that mm-hmm. helped me mm-hmm. think differently, right? You mm-hmm. know, so we have, mm-hmm. we have to be able to do some psychological housekeeping, right? We need to get our minds right. And we know, you know, black folks aren't stupid. We're not dumb. We may do some silly things here and there, but we're not dumb people. We get things very well. But we have to be able mm-hmm. to be assertive enough and uh, and be disciplined enough to do what's best for us in the moment so that we're not causing further harm to ourselves. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that comes to mind as you talk is um, movies like Fences. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's probably no one listening to this program who has seen either the – the stage production of Fences um, mm-hmm. or uh, the uh, movie. Yeah. And 
um, I knew Mr. Wilson and his family. I happen to mm. um, know that family. I know the struggle that he had in his literary career. Mm-hmm. Um, it was toward the end of his life that people really began to um, to pay attention to the messages in his plays. Uh, but one of the things that we can do is begin to start collecting those um, um, those uh, movies, the, the 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 stuff that is that is available to us that our children and the young people in our lives are 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 are. We could begin the dialogue from there, yeah. Um, and understand as we process things. You know, for instance, a long time ago, Brandon, um, <clears throat> I I was a volunteer uh, and on the board of the um, Jane Doe um, organization in Boston, which was the uh, statewide. Our Commonwealth-wide uh, organization for programming, education, and training for domestic violence nonprofits mm-hmm. and government. And we used to have an event every three months where we would put out these placards which represented every woman who in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts had died that year uh, had been killed in um, an intimate uh, relationship violence incident. And none of us could understand the ones that would put up the placards. I mean, we'd be in this big mm-hmm. field putting up all these placards, and at the end, after putting the placards up, we could barely we could barely operate. Because essentially we were putting up dead bodies, women who had died. And until the Jane Doe uh, organization began to understand what was happening with the volunteers, (laughs) and it really was because we were processing and synthesizing a form of violence that was very personal, very close. Um, And so... I began to have an awareness of the kinds of things that you need to do. You you need to have your eyes full open as we face racism, as we face the ide- ideology of white supremacy that operates in our workplaces, uh, in the businesses that where we are consumers, um, and listening to our children talk about how they experience racism. And that is yet another form of uh, uh, Mm self-care, to be able to even say it loud, say it out loud. And I'm wondering if part of the education of our community has to do with helping people to recognize what saying it out loud, 
and synthesizing it may mean to their wellness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that was a lot. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we have to be honest. I mean, you know, when I shared that framework earlier today, um, I talked about, you know, the first thing is adaptive awareness. The key to that is being honest. And some of us, it's hard to be honest because when you're being honest about situations, what ends up happening is you have to face yourself. And as, as people in general, well, well, as black folks, I'll just be honest. As black folks, we've, we've grown accustomed to looking out the window and not looking in the mirror. Yeah, so we can we yeah. can identify we can identify what everybody else is doing wrong, but when we have to look in the mirror and look at ourselves and what we're doing wrong, what we need to heal, or what we need to start working on, that becomes a difficult journey. That's hard for any and everybody. But yeah, we have yeah. to be able to do that. Now you're that. not in our chat room, so you're not no. seeing responses. And one of the responses that we have, and thank you very much for. Uh, your serious consideration in the chat room about this topic. Um, People are resisting the idea that this government's ineffective and negligence in regard to a a, a national response to coronavirus pandemic that it feels like it's another form of genocide. Absolutely. It, it definitely can be. I mean, we've lost a lot of people, and, and we're not. But people are resisting that. They, they they keep talking yeah. about Donald. Donald Trump is stupid. Donald Trump is dumb. <laughs> and I'm saying he's slick as a fox. Yeah. But again, that goes back to what I was saying this moment a moment ago. You know, it's easier to just name call Donald Trump than deal with the reality that this this illness is for real. I mean, let's think about this. And I, I I'm pretty sure you heard this back in March and April. Black people can't get coronavirus. <laughs> you know, we weren't even we weren't even thinking about it as something we could even get. I mean, I, that was like the the thing for like a two a month and a half, almost two months, we couldn't even get it. And then the results started to come back and black folks was dying from it more than anybody. And it goes to and and reasons for that is our health conditions were already in bad shape before coronavirus even came about. Uh-huh. Because we live in a system that creates a lot of toxic stress and that toxic stress starts to, you know, impact our immune system. And our ability to adapt to the stressors, and it, it impacts our health. Go ahead. You're going to say something. Uh, but one of the things is people resist and call that a conspiracy theory, understanding that we did, as you said, we did begin this with the high, all of the high dispropor- highly disproportionate uh, medical, racial medical disparities in this country. So I had a conversation with my audience on Wednesday about returning students returning, opening the schools again. And one of the things that I outlined for them, and I can't remember all the statistics that 
um, I was able to recall at the time, but black children have the highest incidence of respiratory and pulmonary and immune-resistant disease in yep. this country. Yep, yep. And nobody's talking about what that means for black children returning to school. Nobody's talking mm-hmm. about what are the voices of black mothers and fathers who have to make the decision um, about that. You know, I saw this thing, and I, I I just want to throw this in here. I saw one of those memes on online uh, yesterday, and and it said the Jamaican grandmother said it would be better to have dim done dim dim dumb than dim dead. <laughs> I went, yeah. See, <laughs> the older generation it gets to the point. So it is another stressor, and that's what I mean when I wrote the description of this episode of Our Common Ground about the contemporary compounding of the emotional stressors that go for black people in this country. And I didn't hear the one about black people couldn't get it. I, oh, yeah. I didn't hear that one. It's kind of <laughs> you kind of struck me with that one. Oh, no, yeah. But there was a lot I of did hear the that. one. Yeah. I did hear the one um, about the lack of acknowledgement and embellishment of the issue by the CDC and the National Health Institute. And y'all can tout Fauci all you want to tout Fauci. He should have left. He stayed for his career. And now we have it. But anyway, they weren't talking about the racial um, health disparities. Uh, uh, when when I was opening this 2020 season of Our Common Ground, our first guest was Dr. Uh, Kamara Jones, who is an epidemiologist who specializes in racial health disparities. And we started talking about it. And it it wasn't pretty, Brandon. It really wasn't pretty. Uh, It really wasn't. Uh, For those who are joining us late, this is Our Common Ground, and we're talking with Brandon Jones of the Jegna Institute. He is the founder and director, a psychotherapist, a professor, and consultant, and uh, you can find him at Jegna, J-E-G-N-A Institute dot org. Uh, and so let's let's talk about some solutions here, um, Brandon. Yeah. Okay. So from yep. So oh, but by the way, on this <laughs> right. on this mm-hmm. mental wellness and emotional health and self care, uh, black people are have the lowest. Um, level of health care access and health care insurance in the country, except for the original peoples who live on reservations. Correct. Yep. And, and, and unfortunately, when you look at statistics, when you break them down by ethnicity, 
we always trade off either first place or second place for everything bad with Native Americans. So in states where there's not a lot of Natives, we'll be number one. And in, some, in states where there are Natives, like here in Minnesota, um, we'll, we'll be trading off one and two, which is, which is interesting when you look at it from a historical trauma standpoint, us being the two groups um, that were traumatized and terrorized for the found, founding of what we know this country to be. But when we talk about solutions, or as I like to call them, strategies, because, you know, as we make strides towards dealing with racism, white supremacy, and anti-blackness, racism, white supremacy also makes their adjustments. <laughs> so we have, to be, we have to be very strategic on how we do this. One thing that we mm-hmm. definitely need to do is we have to get our physical health in order. And if that means walking 30 minutes a day or doing jump rope or even playing with your kids, I mean, doesn't ha- you don't have to be the, the gym warrior, but we have to be able to physically take better care of ourselves. Physical health plays on your mental health. Your nutrition is extremely important because we need to live as health as you know we need to live healthy lives as best as we can. And just too many of us don't look at that. Even just eating different uh, can help. So we have to get our physical health together. When it comes to strategies for or solutions for mental health, I, as a mental health professional, would say you can you can if you can afford it, definitely go to a you know professional therapy can be helpful, but make sure your therapist has some knowledge on who you are as a, as a people. I think that that's so vital and so important, and many therapists don't. Um, but there are a lot of us out here that do. Uh, most cities have a local chapter of ABSI, which is the Association of Black Psychologists. I would look look that go on that website and see who the, who those people are in your area, and get connected with those folks. A lot of people in mm-hmm. ABSI they know they know about you know historical trauma. They know about Dr. Joy DeGuru. They know about some of the folks we talked about today, and and that therapeutic perspective would be helpful. If you're in an area where that's not possible, you need to go to a therapist that is skilled in whatever issue you have. So if you've been sexually abused, you've been in a domestic violence situation, uh, you have childhood trauma, you're dealing with racism at work, there are therapists who specialize in those types of areas, and those folks can help you deal with that specific problem. They might not understand the full context of what you've dealt with, but they can be helpful. Mm-hmm. Another strategy solution mm-hmm. that I suggest um, is if you are, find time to do something that you enjoy um, and make sure that what you're doing that you enjoy is healthy. Even if you do, you might enjoy cigars or, you know, wine or whatever. That that can be unhealthy at times, but just don't overdo it. But, you know, find time to do the things that you enjoy because even though we deal with so much as black people, we still have to have you know, joy in our lives. We still need to have some fun, and we're good at mm-hmm. we're good at finding things fun. We're good at smiling through the pain, but that can't be the only thing you do. But but do have some joy and do have some fun. You know, we have to find things that we enjoy, whether that's fishing, you know, talking with your friends, binge watching TV shows, whatever it might be. Find time to do something that you enjoy. You know, too many of us are overcompensated with trying to take care of everybody else. And we ain't taking care of ourselves as best as we can. Mm-hmm. And then 
another thing I would say is, um, you know, financially, you gotta you gotta find some level of comfort in, in financials. Many of us work jobs that we hate. <laughs> Many of us do work that we no longer think we should be doing. And and I always suggest try to find a way to make money because you need money in the society that is not going to stress you out to the point where you're having physical or emotional health issues. You have to be able to, you know, make a living but don't kill yourself doing it. Mm-hmm. And then the last strategy that I would have, and this is more focused towards our young people, is for parents and caregivers, and this is very important, you have to have good co-parenting skills, whether you're with the person you're parenting with or you're not. Being a co-parent is about your strategy and developing the young people in your life, and it's vital. I'm married. I've been married now since, uh, let's see, eight years, and me and my wife continue to develop our co-parenting skills, even though we're together. We still work as a co-parent because the way I was brought up and the way she was brought up is very different, and our parenting styles are different, and our children are different. They have different personalities, so we are always adjusting. We talked about code switching earlier. We literally code switching our parenting all the time because <laughs> our children mm-hmm. are different, and they mm-hmm. have different needs from both of us, and we have to be able to mm-hmm. meet those needs and meet the needs for each other and support each other. Co-parenting is so vital for black folks. We have so many families that are in situations where, um, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of dysfunction and frustration and and, and and confusion that we have to be on the same page with the people who are parenting our kids. Because, you know, most of the people who come to therapy that I've encountered have had some fragile family dynamic. And it's very, very upset that, you know, when your families are not in good shape, or they have a level of dysfunction, what ends up happening is it causes huge social and emotional issues later. So, you know, being a parent or being a caregiver is vital, but you can't do it alone. You need to have help as best as you can. So those are just mm-hmm. some strategies mm-hmm. that I can give that aren't million-dollar strategies, but they're things that you can do today that don't cost you a lot of money but definitely can have huge impacts on your life, um, you know, and, and it can make a difference before you know it. So mm-hmm. I'll pause well, one of the things that um, we are thinking that we are missing real opportunities uh, to work at uh, emotional and mental wellness uh, with the tools, technical tools that we have, the FIRE, the whatever Facebook page, uh, live and YouTube and Instagram. I don't know if Instagram is live, but... Um, we're missing opportunities, and and I think we need to, as a collective activist, uh, aware, um, woke folks, we need to do more to use those tools uh, to give people an opportunity to understand. Because I think we 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 minimize. What people I, I think we I, I think we underestimate we overestimate really understand about the price that they pay in this country to survive. Brandon Jones, thank you so very much. I hope you'll come back again. And you know Absolutely. I'm coming for the Jagman Institute to do something. <laughs> 
uh, at TruthWorks Network, and I, I have an idea uh, about providing maybe once a month some online opportunity because it's very anonymous, which is why I don't do YouTube and all those things where you see me. I was I did a you see me Facebook thing the other night, and I was so uncomfortable because I'm accustomed to still having on my shorts and 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 thinking rather than worrying about what I look like and and um. Stephen was telling me my hair wasn't looking crazy, and I was thinking my hair was looking crazy because <laughs> I hadn't dressed in so many months that I didn't even know where to start. So we hope you'll come back, and, and I'll be talking with you uh, because I think people do need to, to talk about specifically, and, and we're going to be doing it on Wednesday now in our Wednesday um, open mic night. I'm seeing people who are just so angry at this government, um, and they're not changing, so we've got to uh, be able to address it. It's Brandon Jones of the Jegna Institute at Jegna, J-E-G-N-A Institute.org, and uh, we are so appreciative of you, young brother, for the work that you are doing. I've been watching you, you for a while. Okay, Absolutely. thank you so very much, and we'll see you the next time you're here. Absolutely, can't wait. We're going to take a break. We're going to take a break, and when we'll come back uh, and tell you what's going to be happening on Wednesday night open mic and what's going to be happening um, at our Common Ground next Saturday night. Good to have all of you with us. We've got 312, we've got 6561 numbers, we've got 3773 numbers, we've got 8202 numbers on our board, and we are so thankful that you have joined us. The United States is a mafia government. No one has done more damage and degradation and murder, rape, and robbery. Then Europeans. Yes, therefore, in order to escape confrontation with their true criminal nature, they must accuse others of being criminals. But because of that, they must become upset with the criminality of other people. And black folk become those other people, you see. Please, 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 please. Officer Chauvin lifts his knee from Floyd's neck around 8.28 p.m. after 8 minutes and 46 seconds. Common Ground with Janice Graham. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more.
Well, we're right back with more, and we want to thank you for being with us. Let me let me tell you what we're going to do on Wednesday night open mic. But before I do that, uh, I want you to look for India Declare on Real Raw right now here at Blog Talk Radio. Follow her, and you'll get uh, information about when she will be broadcasting live. She also has a complement of uh, on-demand uh, episodes that you are available to tap into. Uh, India has been here at Blog Talk Radio for over 10 years now, and uh, we want you to enjoy the wisdom of Real Raw and Right Now, Real Raw Right Now with India Declare on Friday nights at 10 p.m., and next Wednesday night at in Contano, Wednesday night open mic at Our Common Ground, we're going to be talking about the craziness that we live in uh, in the context of what uh, Brandon Jones talked with us tonight. Uh, I, I do think that there is uh, a flavor of... Um, of some thoughts. I mean, you cannot forget that you have Stephen Miller in the White House, who's a, a stone Nazi. If you told Donald Trump he was a Nazi, he doesn't even understand because he doesn't know anything about history or ideology. He just adapts to to whatever people tell him that will uh, inspire his base. Um, on next Saturday here at Our Common Ground, we're going to be talking with Dr. Ruby Sales again. We're getting ready for a month. The month of September will be nothing. Every uh, episode of Our Common Ground will be about reparations. Uh, Dr. S- um, Sandy Darity will be joining us, uh, Dr. Ron Daniels and the NARC group in COBRA. Um, so... All of September we're going to be talking about reparations because I think that whoever is the president come the beginning of the new year, the uh, whatever, we're going to be in, 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 in an underground civil war or an overt civil war. we got to be ready for it. we got to be ready for it. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you so much for being with us. See you on Wednesday night. Uh, right here at uh, Our Common Ground. We hope that you'll tell your friends. We're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. We're on um, all of the social media platforms that uh, you would probably go to uh, to uh, stay in touch. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this breaking news report. A slave ship has just risen out of the Hudson River in front of the Statue of Liberty. Yes, we are our father's sons and daughters, but we are not their choices. But despite their absences, we are still here, still alive, still breathing, with the power to change this world, one little boy and girl at a time. Not, not, who's there? We are. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. For all of you that have joined us in our chat room, we thank you as well. I'm Janice Grant. Join us each Saturday at Our Common Ground. 
I'll be listening for you. And don't forget, we are here at Our Common Ground each Wednesday night, Open Mic Wednesday night. Same time, 10 p.m., listener-driven, I'm only the host. Serious examination of black truth on Our Common Ground. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. And now it's winter. Winter in America. But I guess to me the thing about the black squares is that's a black square for 24 hours and then you're done with it and you can move on kind of. But for black people it's like our whole body is covered in a black square and we carry it with us everywhere we go. How do I feel? Um, I feel exhausted, I feel angry, I feel upset. I feel frustrated. I feel overwhelmed with rage that things like this are still occurring across the world in the big 21st century. I have to continue to see black people from around the world brutalized by people who want to abuse their power. It was so disappointing to hear people saying they were shocked on social media. How can you be shocked about something that people have been talking about since 2013? I feel genuinely baffled as to how it is 2020 and yet us black people still need to campaign to be treated like our life matters. I think about this often, about what exactly separated me from the Michael Browns, the Kendra Jameses, the Jordan Edwards, the Tamir Races. This isn't just a single issue and it's not just about George Floyd, it's about, do you know Tamir Rice? Tamir Rice, in like 2016 or something, he was 12 years old at the time when he was shot in cold blood when he was carrying a toy that the police officers believed was a gun. Right, and so it's just like it doesn't matter if you're 12 or if you're 100 because if you're black, there's always sort of this like justification for violence against you. We feel that we need protection from police and yet they're supposed to be the ones making us feel most safe and then you'll forget until that hashtag, whether it's George Floyd, Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Mark Duggan, until that dies down, and then the next hashtag trend comes along. While I can respect that non-black people are doing, that some non-black people are doing their part in trying to educate themselves about what Black Lives Matter really means, fundamentally, my life is not a trend. Something that myself and many black people across the world need everyone to know is that we'll still be black tomorrow. This isn't a trend. It's not a trend to talk about the importance of black lives. The past few days have been heartbreaking and distressing. This has to have an impact on our mental health, constantly seeing brutalised black bodies that could easily be us if, if we were there. The youth as a collective are finally sick and tired of 
you know, what's going on in the world and we are finally doing something about it. The famous words of Martin Luther King, our lives begin to end when we become silent about things that matter. Being black means to be powerful, educated, talented. Feeling the solidarity with my brothers and sisters that lets us mourn together, that lets us stand together and lets us speak up together. It's really proud to be black at the moment. We will not rest because if there is no justice, then there will not be.